0: Join me for new episodes on the third Monday of every month on the story behind the song from the Consequence Podcast Network, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hey pod people, Engineer Adam here, jumping in for a quick second to let you know about the brand new all-in-one platform for all of you creative podcasters out there. Anchor makes it easier than ever to make a podcast. It's free to use and has all the creation tools you need to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Plus, Anchor will get your podcast set up on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are found. Even better, Anchor helps you connect with sponsors, even if you're just starting out. It's the perfect choice for podcasters, so make sure to check it out. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's A-N-C-H-O-R.fm. Back to the show. He's been shot six times. Halloweenies. He's been burned alive. Halloweenies. He's lost his head. Halloweenies. Michael Myers can't and won't be stopped, which is why he returns this October. In anticipation, the Consequence Podcast Network presents Halloweenies, a limited series that carves out one Halloween movie a month, leading all the way up to the October 19th release of David Gordon Green and Danny McBride's new movie. You'll get tricks. You'll get treats. You'll get Michael. Tune in for the night we came home.
2: Consequence Podcast Network.
3: Welcome back. Welcome, welcome. Welcome. Back once again with the Renegade Master D4 Damager. Is that not no, is that not the podcast?
0: No, that's extremely hip.
3: That is extremely hip welcome to this week's episode of this must be the gig a little podcast we've cooked up over here at consequence of sound i'm so excited for this week's episode in the studio with me today is producer adam you are the laurel to my yanny (laughs) Uni. is that how it's said? uni.
0: yeah you're doing it
3: i'm doing you're doing it you're doing it go kid
0: i've always thought of myself as the laurel to your hearty so oh
3: chapin i'm so excited to say that this week's episode is presented by the incredible vivid seats
0: i've been scoping out vivid seats to get a drake ticket for myself so
3: i mean i'll use
0: that discount code
3: god's plan (laughs) god's plan you gotta get a drake ticket and
0: i think if you act Quickly, you might be able to use that code to get a ticket to Boston Calling,
3: maybe. So this week's episode is all about Boston Calling, an amazing festival that actually starts in a few days. It's on Friday...
0: The 25th.
3: Nice. It's very soon. And the whole thing actually began in May of 2013. So that took place twice a year through to 2015. And then in 2016... It just happened once a year and then it moved most recently in the last year or two to Harvard Athletic Complex. So essentially they've gone from six acres to 16, which is a massive jump, right? It's a huge jump. I think change for anybody is a tricky mother bugger. And you really have to navigate it correctly, right? But with that expansion, with great space comes great responsibility. (laughs) They continue to expand their music offering now as well and they've included other things so now they've gone from a small space to a big space that's the one expansion and now they're bringing even more artists that's the next one and the third thing because i love to quantify stuff the third thing is that they've created this amazing arena which you'll hear more about during this episode so they've got love it or leave it they have pod save america they have the natalie portman Academy Award winning actress, producer, director and rapper and rapper. What you want now, Lee? So naturally, because we're a curious bunch, we got the inimitable Aaron Dessner of The National. He has been the co-curator of Boston Calling's lineup since the festival began He founded and curates other music festivals like Eau Claire and also there's an amazing one in Copenhagen called Haven. We use the word multidisciplinary and multidimensional a lot, but that is because there are layers to us humans and now festivals are catching on to that. And our other guest today is Brian Appel, the co-founder of Boston Calling and I think it's important to shine a light on what a festival does behind the scenes, you know, to ensure that the only things that you're complaining about are totally mundane, like queues and toilets and toilet queues. You know, the big things, he has those covered. So I think that that's really amazing. and I love that I, I chose to chat to them now. You know, there's no better time to speak to someone where they are at the height of their stress.
0: Just mi- they're counting the minutes down they're until that counting festival the starts. Minutes
3: down. If you're going to Boston Calling, let us know who are you most excited to see pick Ooh. your baby pick your poison
0: no name that's my poison
3: oh no name i'm so excited for that and saint vincent and pussy riot and maggie Run, and perfume Jean. there's over 54 performances and it's all headlined by eminem the killers and jack white it's got it all baby
0: it's got it all baby
3: so the, so this is our chat with Aaron and brian enjoy Tell me, what was the first show you ever
1: went to? Yeah, I mean, it would have been like I was seven years old, and it was either Crosby, Stills, and Nash, or Peter, Paul, and Mary. Oh <laughs> Paul my, God. my mom and dad would take us to see, like, these, these sort of classic 60s and 70s artists in Cincinnati, Ohio, um, usually at this outdoor amphitheater called Riverbend. I remember we went to an Allman Brothers concert when we were probably. I don't know, barely ten or eleven years old. Yeah. But it was one of that was a moment where we were like, Oh my god, we wanna learn how to play guitar. My dad was a musician though, so he was a, a a great jazz drummer. Um, that we didn't really know that until we were like we found his drums in the furnace room in storage when we were six or seven, um and got him to set them up and then started to realize this whole history of that he had played serious music. From the time he was like thirteen until thirty or so, so we used to go see all kinds of music as kids.
3: I love that—that you didn't know that your dad was a musician, but obviously it was around the house all the time. Yeah,
1: they never really—they didn't really—we didn't understand what a what that it had been this big part of his life until. I mean, I guess it was still fairly early because I started taking drum lessons when I was seven years old, and my brother started playing the flute. From that point forward. We found his vinyl collection, which was extensive and all kinds of music, but mostly jazz and sort of classic rock. And then we had an older sister who was three years Mm -hmm. older, and she was really into alternative music. She was listening to The Smiths and New Order and the Pixies and stuff. So we got into all that and there was just a lot of music around Cincinnati was kinda of interesting. There were these small clubs and stuff and coffee houses and different places you could go to hear live music and there was a good jazz club downtown and so from you know, as soon as we were able to find a way to get get out and back then there weren't really music festivals anywhere near mm. where we lived. So we never really had that experience until, really, until we were in the bands playing playing at music festivals.
3: Oh, wow. So you didn't actively, like, go and travel around and go to festivals? I
1: should clarify that. We went to see the Lilith Fair festival,
3: uh, wow! the
1: Horde festival, which was like a sort of a jam festival. And we would have seen a lot of outdoor concerts and stuff, but there weren't, there weren't so many mm. outdoor music festivals in the States. There were these classic amphitheaters where like the Grateful Dead would play and the Allman Brothers and stuff like that. So we would go see, see those shows. But yeah, it was really when, the, when the national started touring. This is almost 20 years ago that we yeah. started to experience like some of the European festivals and really get exposed to that culture, which is much further evolved in Europe.
3: Europe is such a different approach. They want to create, obviously, worlds within their festival and really reflect the, the city that they're in. So Erin, quickly, which was the first festival that you played at?
1: The first place that the national really had an audience was in France. And so we played
3: ah, interesting. a number
1: of festivals in France early on, like in 2002 and 2003. And that would have been like the Euro, Euro- European festival in Belfort, which is a big one. And, and, um, we played something called Paredes de Cura in Portugal and we played, um, nuit fou like was they, they, they it's sort of hard to, hard to <laughs> yeah. spell. um we played a bunch of these sort of not very big they weren't like giant festivals, but they were you know it was amazing because all of a sudden instead of playing for three hundred people in a club mm. or two hundred people or no one in a club you were you got a chance to play for thousands of people and it was kind of it was exhilarating mm. um it was also really fascinating to see this like communal gathering where there was like a bigger dialogue going on and just to wander around and get lost in these festivals so so we did that and um and then we got to play you know Reading and Leeds and Glastonbury and all those kinds of things and over the years we've probably played hundreds and hundreds of festivals all over the world I
3: now. I It's such an incredible thing and there's, it's difficult to stop and actually reflect on a lot of it just because there's been so much and so many years of touring as well. But the amount of places and people you've probably met, I can't even imagine how incredible that's been for you just to grow as well as an artist. And I'm sure that that's helped you create and curate festivals as well because you curate three different festivals.
1: We were lucky to have these experiences over a long period of time. And the national was very much like a, we never caught fire in a sense. Like, so we didn't zoom to the top of the bill. We've played these festivals at all, all levels. So like at the beginning of the day, a small tent and, you know, now we'll headline big festivals in different parts of the world and, so, and everything in between. So you learn a lot about, you know, where you feel engaged musically and, where you feel like the audience is is having an interesting experience and a diverse experience and the the, the festivals which always stuck out in my mind were ones where there was some sort of multidisciplinary
3: right. uh,
1: aspect to it where it wasn't just music and and where there was a real focus on discovery and presenting. There are, in most festival situations, there are artists that are giant artists that are kind of at the top Mm. of the bill and headliners, that kind of thing. But but I always find it interesting in these places if you can go out and see something that you've never seen before. And it's a great chance to give exposure to more underground music and to sort of like create opportunities for collaboration. So over the years, and this is a very long No, it's great.
3: It's totally relevant because you are so right in that it's not just a trend. It's it's absolutely needed to have a multidisciplinary approach to festivals, which is exactly what we'll get into slowly in this conversation because that's what you and Brian are both doing for Boston Calling. So that really makes... I hear you.
1: About 13 or 14 years ago in Cincinnati, Ohio, my brother started something called... Music Now, um, which we've I've always kind of been something we all we all work on together. And this year that we had the you know, we turned that into both Music Now and we called it Homecoming. So we combined it like a outdoor music festival with sort of an indoor arts festival that's um presenting a lot of new work and more avant garde um music and, and there were museum shows and all kinds of things and it's kind of like a real blend of um, what we're trying to do with Boston Calling and with Eau Claire and like this interest in trying to create opportunities to use these experiences to, to, to create opportunities for new work and new collaboration and kind of getting outside of the normal tedium of touring and things and mm. so that's and that's just really a product of having been a touring musician for 20 years we all realize at some point that we couldn't just get up every night and play the same song the same yeah. way you know it's different in different cities and different audiences but like very quickly you get kind of bored of it or or it becomes tedious and it also it's not the most musical experience mm. i think that's sort of where my interest in festivals in, in helping to curate them comes from I don't even like the word curator I more just think of it in terms of like collaborating with friends and creating an experience that's multi-dimensional and that it's a place for people to gather and have you know a wonderful time but also hopefully to discover like at Boston Calling it's as important what's way down the bill or the undercard you know at the festival as, of course, as what you see yeah. on top in the headliners and that's kind of what we're going for, is something that's that has, that is very balanced and diverse.
3: Yeah, and I think that's so interesting that you you want that and you have that vision in your mind and you want to disrupt. And it's really interesting how Brian, you you and your partner Mike Snow, I believe that you also worked at a radio station. So you also come from a background where music was part of your life as well. But did you have that same affinity towards Filling that gap and really wanting something that was multi-dimensional. Well,
2: for Mike and myself, um, we come from much more of a operational background in the sense that the, the the media company that we worked at, the radio station and the newspaper, we were really heavily involved in the logistics of events and the city relationships and the public safety side of it. So when the opportunity came about a couple of years ago to put something like Boston Calling together. Yeah. Our interests were very much in the operational side because there's obviously lots of things that have to come together to make something like this happen. <laughs> yeah. And then we relied on friends like Aaron and some of the other people that get on the phone call to talk about, you know, how the the bill should look and sound and feel to, to really try to put that piece together because it wasn't our um, area of expertise when we started this thing and, and nor is it today our, our production company really focuses on making sure that you know the event runs you know perfectly well and then you know Aaron comes in and brings you know his flavor and his point of view along with the rest of the people in that group to really make sure that the bill um, is superior in every yeah. way so that's that's kind of how we got started on it and it's been amazing to watch what Aaron brings to the table from a booking perspective, and also I think he would agree, when we were fortunate enough to move out of our previous home uh, over to our new home at Harvard, one of the best things aside from like just more square footage and more stages was the opportunity to use the indoor arena at Harvard mm-hmm. and be able to program multidisciplinary work in there which is obviously something we weren't able to do before and that just opens up a whole new world of creativity when you have indoor absolutely
3: erin do you remember brian's chat in initials i don't want to call it like a sales pitch because i doubt you did that brian but do you do you both remember that first conversation when you were chatting about collaborating and working together on this
1: yeah i mean it's actually in the midst of recording trouble find me it was in 2012 we have like really close friends, actually Brian's cousin is one of my close friends. Oh, wow. And there was sort of a couple, bunch of conversations about this opportunity because Brian and Mike had the opportunity to do something in Boston and we all knew each other. And it was just sort of, we just started talking in a very, you know, like friends talking about an idea. But to build something from the ground up is daunting and there's a lot of moving parts to it far as both operationally and in terms of the programming like how do you how do you how actually do, you do
3: this bands
1: <laughs> yeah. and, and like how do you actually get convinced people to, to do it and like what are the economics of that and what are the practicalities and at that point the national have been playing in boston since 2001 and and even mm-hmm. before that in college i used to play shows up in boston all the time i went to in New York, and my brother went to school in New Haven, and we had a college band with the drummer of the National. We used to travel up and down, um, and we had played a radio show that Brian had organized, and, and it was just it made sense, like because also when you think about putting out a new record as a mm-hmm. band, you're always thinking about like, well, how could we do something in these cities where we love to go that is new and different, and so in particular when it, when it, when Boston Calling started in City Hall Plaza, what I really loved was that they're you could only have two stages, actually, so there was no overlap for the bands, which make makes it great for the smaller bands because they get to play for the same number of people as you know whoever's closing the night. At least you know, hopefully, almost the same number, and and that is a great you know opportunity. It's always been something that, again, as a, as someone who's played tons and tons of these events, it's it's nice when you're not competing against other things, and um, obviously that's changed a little bit now that we've moved to to harvard athletic athletic campus but i think in a good way because it gives us other opportunities
3: there's obviously a distinct difference between what you both do but both are obviously necessary and it's great that you bring to the table things that you are obviously both passionate about but then how did you develop the festival's kind of style and aesthetic in the beginning what
2: we saw Lior, in in this market in boston was that this type of programming entertainment event didn't exist. We thought that there was a city here that would embrace if it was done properly. And especially if it was done by people, you know, who took care to, to curate it and present it in such a way that was kind of in line with the atmosphere of Boston and new England as a whole. I, I I can't say for sure. My, my feeling is that if it was like a franchise type festival with people that were, you know, living elsewhere and then just came in for a week and tried to put it together and then left, that it would miss a lot of like the, um, the aesthetic and the, you know, the energy of the city. So I think us being here and being local to Boston is, is kind of why the city embraced it in some Mm. ways. And then of course, Aaron, you know, and the team's curation was careful in that we knew that we were in a New England market and we we looked at what types of artists do really well up here and we looked at our site and we said what 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 makes sense to bring in. So I don't think it was an accident that the the aesthetic and like the look and feel of the festival sort of matches in in a lot of ways what a lot of New Englanders and and Bostonians, you know, feel and how they like to take in their music and their entertainment
3: absolutely i think that that's so interesting to say as well because i think that's really important to have an identity and not isolate people who are coming to your festival and also i suppose it's twofold right you want all the locals to come and then you also want foreigners to to come and experience that as well
2: well i think you at least from my point of view and aaron maybe you think differently but You know, I've always thought if we're not serving like the people that live in this area first and foremost, then it becomes a really challenging business model if you think that you're gonna be able to just draw people from all over the world and that's how you're gonna develop your audience and your consistency. So I thought it was important to be creating something that resonated with Boston and New England and then do our thing. And you know, if people from other parts of the country and other parts of the world come, that's wonderful. And we welcome everybody, obviously. But if it wasn't true to the region, mm-hmm. I think we would have had a very different experience the first couple of years trying to be all things to everybody in the world.
3: How is it typically boston if if I can put it that way? How, how do you feel it best reflects the area that it's in?
2: Well, that's a great question. And I think it comes through in a bunch of ways. One is I think that the design aesthetic kind of resonates with of the design looks of the city um you know we name our stages by colors of the train lines that run through the city we're not overly flashy we don't brag or or have any type of um, attitude about what we do we just work hard every day and build something from the ground up and i think that that's sort of the the way that a lot of you know bostonians and new englanders carry themselves the food is all local Mm. the beer is local you know the vendors are local like it just has a real boston vibe to it when you're there
3: i think that it's obviously very important to do your research and make sure you're including everybody around but then that also brings to the fact that it's difficult to bring as many artists as you're wanting because of gosh i we can go on a rant about how much is involved in probably curating a lineup but it isn't just a pick and choose and you get whoever you want Aaron, I'm sure this is your this is your specialty. Um, but Brian, are you involved at all in the curation?
2: So I I, I sit in on the calls okay. and because well, first and foremost, because I find it the most interesting part of the job actually, because mm-hmm. I, I just find it fascinating. But my role, the way I see it, is not to bring like my personal musical taste or or my curation ideas to the table. There's obviously people that are far more qualified than myself to do that. So really when you know the offer gets made and an artist confirms it's it's really my job to work with our booker to make sure that we've, you know, done the contract properly and that we've advanced properly and the artist's needs are met and requests are taken care of and their production is in line.
3: And Erin, and I can't even yeah, I imagine how difficult that is as well, especially something that you want to be multi-dimensional, inherently Boston y. Also I think that in the past a lot of creative forces you'll be called into question if you're lacking in diversity or not appealing to everybody. it's not a lot to ask, right? There's so many things that, that you have to be accountable for. So how do you navigate that?
1: Um, Well, I mean, first of all, it's definitely a a group effort and we have a wonderful book, like a a sort of a a internal booker um, programmer named Trevor Solomon, who we all have known for, for years. He he comes from Portland and, and then there's, you know, kind of a, a team of people that all collaborate on this. And I, I do play the role of the in-house resident artist, I guess, yes. and just trying to have, a, have that voice and, and advocate, especially for some of the more underground or, or up and coming kind of artists that we, that we book and, and just encouraging as much diversity as we can. And the truth is like, we're always trying to make, you know, to pull together the best, possible and most diverse lineup that we can it's it is incredibly challenging to book a music festival because of mainly because of scheduling and just you know artists are touring and they're in different parts of the world and there's there are festivals many festivals that compete in terms of the you know that are on the same weekend as ours and so you can't if you make a wish list um, which we do, you know, we have a wish list of, which everybody collaborates mm-hmm. on and I'll make, you know, I kind of am always thinking about that and you can't, it's pretty rare that we get everything that's on that wish list and so, and not to say it's a big compromise in the end, because it's not I mean, we love everything that we, everyone that we invite, Um, but but yeah, it's, it's definitely, for me, the main criteria is just craftsmanship and, and if I feel, I'm just interested if I'm excited to see somebody play and to kind of like BFI on the wall and get to and you know, get to see see their craft. Then I'm excited to invite them. And it doesn't. I don't really think too much about like balancing genres and balancing things like that. Although it, it kind of happens naturally, and there are other people in the team that are good at that. And I think and I also think that there's increasingly these the lines are very blurry between types of music and and sort of you know there's a lot of
3: cross-pollination
1: mm-hmm. going on within popular music yeah. and, and um, you know. And then the other thing is, I think, as far as doing other events, again, like, each event has its own DNA and its own story, and really it's just a product, again, of having done this for a very long time and and having a very active musical life and looking for opportunities to... To work with people and have a chance to hang out and make stuff. So while Boston Calling, Boston Calling is kind of the biggest festival that I'm involved in. It's really evolved. It's really grown to be something that's now one of the larger festivals on the East Coast or one of the larger festivals in the United States in general. Something like Eau Claire that you know that we started with Justin Vernon, and you know that's a totally different experience that's very much grounded in the community oh, in Eau yes, and in yeah. sort of a, particu- a particular kind of work. And that's very important also. And that's actually the same. Brian, Brian also operates that. And so it's kind of like we have our heads in these different experiences. And it's a, one, it's a very... I see it all as part of the same current of work. And so anything that you learn from one festival or one experience mm-hmm. to the other or, or learning about a new artist or hearing something we can, it's really nice because we can find, like if you, a lot of times people do end up playing all of the festivals or,
3: you know, over the years,
1: there's been, there's been a lot of of artists in common. Um, But, but yeah, I I wouldn't say I'm the most knowledgeable person about (laughs) music and what's coming up, but obviously I'm exposed to a lot, you know, through, 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 through touring and through helping make other people's records and just having a lot, like so many of my friends our musicians are in music just naturally because of having had this life for the last two decades, Absolutely. so you hear about it a yeah. lot you know and 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 we all talk about it and um, but yeah it's a it's definitely it's a lot of fun. we have these calls, and we just people make suggestions and there's a lot of back and forth and communication and um and it can be like I said it can be frustrating sometimes you're sort of like there's a conundrum that needs to be solved but it's nice. I mean, I I do enjoy this process also, just to get outside of the particular vortex of like being a creative person and when you're making something or when you're I have when I'm in a recording studio. I'm actually sitting in my recording studio right now, oh, uh, but that's, yeah, you know, that yeah, working on something. Sense. That's a whole that's a whole whole other sort of way of thinking, and it's nice sometimes just to talk to your friends. And Talk about who's making cool stuff, you know, and see if we can figure out how to get them to come play, you know, in Boston. Yeah,
3: and I really love that you said obviously we can't all know what's trendy at every point in time. And you have to obviously honor what you are enjoying as well to make it as authentic as possible. The decision part of the process is predicated on obviously wanting to get something different, wanting to get something trendy, not in terms of appealing to the masses, but in terms of just. Being a time capsule for that year, this year you obviously have Stormzy and Brockhampton and Pussy Riot and St. Vincent. You've got a really eclectic lineup, but how do you think that the boxes have been ticked in terms of what you are setting out to do? I
1: think it's wonderful. Every year I'm kind of amazed that we pulled it (laughs) off, you know, and you look at it and you're like, wow, I can't (laughs) believe I was just thinking about on Friday. Probably my two favorite current artists. This is the kit from oh, yeah. England. Well, they're actually live in Paris and then big thief, which I think is Amazing. One, of the, my, yeah. one of the best bands I've seen a long time that they'll play earlier in the day before us. And I'll just, even if that's all we had, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd be very, very happy. Mm-hmm. St. Vincent is there and, you know, dirty projectors and stormy. And obviously it's a lot of people are looking forward to, to seeing Eminem. Like that's to, to have, Someone on that level is a new experience for for Boston Calling, and I think each year it's important. Like the festival of all, you know, we're always trying to balance diversity, and and it's not really about trends at all. Like we, not, I don't think we don't really talk about like what what's it's the trendy, most popular thing yeah. and how we're going to. You know, it's more trying to create an experience that's cohesive. The most important thing to me um, this year is just that we've really expanded the sort of non musical programming. So, what Natalie Portman is bringing mm-hmm. to with a film program, basically a film festival within Boston Calling, and then sort of comedy programming and, and sort of sociopolitical comedy, you know, Pod Save America, yeah. that kind of dialogue, and just combining, I think, having those experiences in a more intimate indoor space in the context of this what will be you know it's a large music festival now i think it's it's a really good mixture
3: totally i think the best thing about having obviously the the socio-political um conversation podcasts are are conversational and they bring that human aspect to life you know you feel like you're connecting to a person and so does You know, everything that comedy also stands for, it makes you feel like you're connecting. And I think that in an age of us all feeling incredibly connected digitally, but unbelievably disconnected in terms of human interaction, it's really needed for a festival to create that world. I think this is the most fascinating thing about the festival is how you have this arena and how you're bringing in something that I think a lot of festivals are either hesitant to do because of the scheduling from
1: just my experience in playing festivals all over the world, a lot of the festivals that were most impactful for us were the ones like the Sydney festival in Australia mm-hmm. or or you know, which is multidisciplinary where there's theatre and there's dance and there's music and there's film and all kinds of you know, there's classical music and there's then you see a rock band and then you, you know, and like those festivals are really special to wander around or the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, you know, these kinds of experiences, which is those are more further into sort of like the cultural art space and where Boston Calling is. But I think similarly Latitude, the Latitude Festival in England, mm. which is one of our favorite festivals, they have, you know, authors reading and they have comedy and they have things happening up in the woods and and similarly, like Glastonbury, when you're really at Glastonbury and you get lost, you realize it's a, a very diverse experience and you can really have different kinds of experiences. And like you said, you could um, you can unplug from being bands on a stage and go have a different experience. And we've sort of been growing into that in Boston. It's always been aspirational. Initially, we didn't have the space to do it right. because we were limited to just the City Hall Plaza, which we and we made the most of it, and it was mainly focused on music, and then we started to incorporate comedy. I think moving to Harvard has really enabled us to expand now, and, and Natalie is a friend and someone, she's a Harvard alum, and she's obviously such a brilliant actress and important voice for for her generation and for film in general and, and sort of where it's going, and um, so we've been talking for a while about trying to incorporate a film element but as far as comedy i think maybe that's just the dna of our particular group of people but we really it's like right now more than ever it's important to laugh also the, the discourse in terms of like social discourse and political discourse like i think it's a very powerful thing right now and having that be part of the festival in a significant way feels really vital yeah. Also, some of the musical elements that will happen in the arena in collaboration with Natalie and sort of live scoring of films and things, I think will be some of the most interesting musical experience, you know, musical elements that you experience at Boston Calling and sort of like a more experimental side to the festival. And I hope it grows.
3: Obviously, Natalie was meant to be involved last year, but that was canceled. And now you're bringing her back on board, which is incredibly exciting. And I'm sure really good timing for everybody because of what she's able to create but last year you obviously had Hannibal who's amazing and such a character and so lovely just human to human and then you also had Pete Holmes and Tig Notaro and Brian how was that to even just watch last year just to have that experience going on whilst you have this big music festival that you've curated since 2013. Last
2: year, the, the arena and you know the the comedy lineup that took place inside of it was one of the bigger surprises to us <laughs> after the event was over because the festival holds you know tens of thousands of people per day and the arena only holds you know thirty five hundred or so people so it's a much smaller space. We didn't know going into it what the reception was going to be to comedy. Was everyone going to just ignore it and go watch the yeah. bands? And it ended up being one of the highlights. It's not the highlight for lots of people because we were packed. That arena was at capacity from the minute we opened the doors until the last comic oh my was gosh. over with. And I think it's a combination of what Aaron said, right? Like it's cathartic and it's, It's fun, and it's just a great respite. But also, it's just a nice literal break from being outside and the elements of being at a music festival for 10 or 12 hours. It's air-conditioned. There's seating. There's indoor bathrooms. Mm -hmm. There's a bar. It's just a nice way to, to kind of like duck out for an hour or two and have a change of scenery this year's programming is far more diverse in the arena than anything we touched last year as Aaron said this is just continuing to put one foot in front of the other
3: yeah and obviously Natalie is now involved in the film festival which is curated on the premise of the female gaze and then there's also the second part of it which we don't have much information about but it's just Natalie Portman and friends and then she she announced the other day, obviously, that that would be involving St. Vincent and the amazing Zola Jesus and so many more. So what is Natalie going to be doing? Can you give me any information on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I don't want to speak too much about it because it's really best sort of her vision and her something that she has. Deer-headed, so I don't want to, you know, speak in a kind of... Yes,
3: of course. Yeah.
1: But basically she's curated a group of archival films focused on, on female directors and, and sort of things from the past and things she wants to celebrate. And and she's pulled together a group of musicians to live score these films oh, wow. in a kind of experimental and, and collaborative approach to that and um yeah so we're just really excited about it i help a little bit to just you know connect some dots and things but it's really something that she's spearheaded and is yeah i think gonna be again like an element of the festival which is pushing into a new kind of you know activity for us as far as this is new music that's being made specifically for the festival it's nice that she's coming back to where she went to college and it just feels like a nice new element of the festival. The
3: schedule is such that the film festival begins before the festival starts. So so when when would that happen?
1: The live scoring elements are happening on site.
3: Okay. In the arena
1: at Boston Colling. And then the the films being shown at the Brattle. that's sort of a a curated lineup of Mm. more traditional film festival that's happening there, of stuff that she's selected as well. Yeah, and
3: how amazing to bring live scoring. Wow. A lot of people haven't had the chance to experience that. Just having somebody like Natalie, considering what she's achieved in her life, bringing that in with some incredibly prominent female artists, I think that that's that's something that I've not actually seen before. And,
1: And a great chance for the artist to collaborate with Natalie and to work on new music, you know, um, that might be anything from, you know, very composed to very improvised, (laughs) which I really, I really love. And it's one of my favorite things that I've ever gotten to do. And
3: it's really transparent when festivals sometimes just chuck in a woman or a person of color to fit in a quota. It's really important to highlight a prominent woman, but within a context that I feel doesn't feel put on it feels completely natural and as you said there's a educational aspect to it and a an inclusiveness to it how do you think other festivals will hopefully see this as as a step forward
1: it is important to try to find ways to expand what we're doing and to be more inclusive and to you know give other people a chance to influence process and to to develop things and Finale is an important part of that this year, and um, and I hope that Boston Calling will continue to evolve in in new ways. and And um, I think we've done a great job in, in the time since we started, and everyone can always do better. To me, basically, a music festival is all about giving artists time and space mm. to have a new experience, and so. I think more than ever, I'm kind of interested in trying to figure out ways where new and special performances and new and special work is created for the experience specifically, and that's something that we're really doing a lot of at Eau Claire where it's kind of moving much more towards a residency Mm -hmm. almost, um, where it's more about like gathering for a week and and creating new experiences, And, and with Boston Calling this year, really the Film program is adding that element. That's also the case with having diverse experiences. There's actually a, a installation that Boston Calling this year that, that IKEA is bringing, which and they're bringing kind of a whole program of artists from mainly from immigrant communities in sweden um but then there's sort of a collaborative element to it where anyone that wants to can go musicians from within the festival so i'll my brother and i will go um and there's sort of a stage within their installation and at some point during the festival we'll go there and and play with people we haven't met before you know other musicians and those are kinds of experiences that i think are really helpful and really kind of push things in, in new directions.
3: When you create something on this level that's so multi-dimensional, I suppose you're giving people something that they didn't know they wanted. For example, the podcast lineup. Were you guys focused on curating that experience that dealt with the political reality that we face today? You've got Pod Save America, as you mentioned. You've got Love It or Leave It as well. And also comedians that are unafraid of dealing with Political and social issues, like Cameron Esposito, who's just fantastic, and David Cross as well.
1: When you have this opportunity that we have, that we're lucky to have, you think about like how can you? What's important as far as the experience? And it's not. I don't think it's that we're trying to be didactic. That's not a reason for being for Boston Calling. But it is kind of like what are what are the experiences that are moving and that are important? I wouldn't say it's irresponsible not to do that, but I think it's like right. We're living through a very dark time. It's important that we talk to each other and that we have think about things and it's music it's 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 comedy it's, it's I love listening to to podcasts and kind of like what that represents culturally and and the kinds of discourse that's going on and I think it's interesting to include that in a music festival when I'm not playing music. I'll probably just be hanging out in the arena like watching and listening. Mm. <laughs> having that experience
3: absolutely i think that it's so fascinating to hear either people's opinions irrespective of the industry that you're in to be honest at festivals nowadays it's not just the people in the audience really those people are sharing it on social media you can live stream things it's very important for a festival to acknowledge that it's not just insular it isn't just the people that are living and breathing in that space at that moment It really goes far beyond that.
1: It is true. And it all gets magnified and transported, which is why it's also the heart of what we're trying to do and in the right place. And hopefully Brian and Mike and what they do, it's kind of amazing to create an environment that is wonderful, has a feeling and is safe and and has a place you want to be and a place that has a good flow to Mm -hmm. it. Can't wait to get there and you know, obviously I'm excited the Nationals playing, but I think you're right. You know, you try to put your best foot forward and try to be open-minded for everyone. You create the possibility for alchemy, positive alchemy, you know, and um, communication and and the dialogue, you know, and I think it's all, all these things are interrelated and and other events this summer and after Boston Calling, will kind of go around the, around Europe Mm -hmm. and United States, playing other festivals, and you carry with you these experiences.
3: Absolutely. And I love that you can take that with you. And I'm sure, Brian, as well, you're involved in the other festivals also. You're creating an opportunity for things to happen. And when a festival is closed off, or even an artist, to be honest... Is closed off to collaboration and change, I think that that's very problematic and neither party learns. So Brian, just to come back to you on this, is there a highlight in terms of what you're most excited for, just on like a personal level?
2: Well, that's a great question. Thanks. For me, you know, from the operations and the public safety and the community relations perspective, yes. we just learned so much last year doing this for the first time at a new venue, I just feel great going into this year. And what I'm most excited is, you know, last year, the seven or 10 days leading up to the Mm -hmm. event, every day felt like a hundred hours because we were just so busy and so scattered. And this year, we're just so planned and meticulous and know what we're doing now. So I, I feel very excited, you know, to be standing there Friday early afternoon and ready to open the doors once Natalie lands, you know, and comes to the site and I get to see Aaron and, you know, all of our friends are together to make this happen again. But those are those are the more, most rewarding things, you know, connecting with people that you just don't get to see very often in real life anymore.
3: I'm sure that you need to amp up the security. You know, Aaron, you mentioned having a safe space. I think that that is unbelievably important right now. I think that the conversation, if anything, is is just heightening. So what are you kind of doing in terms of having this big space, Brian, and knowing that you're going to have all these people that are not just, you know, maybe from Boston, but all these people coming in for Natalie and for all the headliners and the different things that you're offering. The change,
2: even from when we started Boston Calling in 2013, just from a security and public safety perspective is just so dramatic. The site change and the growth in size is one factor, Mm. but also just because of all the things that have happened in the world in the last five years, some of the stuff that that I do and that I collaborate with my team on is coordinating a security team with a new security director this year who is just so seasoned and experienced that can manage a 200-plus person security team, Mm. everything from the perimeter to the stages to the artist dressing rooms and, you know, to, to some of the artists that travel with their own security detail, it's five police departments that are involved in the security of Boston calling, including special operations units. So there's many, many months and many hours spent from a security and public safety perspective, Boston EMS, Boston Fire Department, um, many community meetings about how this will impact the neighbors and the residents and, and what they can expect. Uh, and what type of security is on the ground. It's never perfect, right? Like there's always a chance that something could happen, but the best you can do is be prepared and think through all of those types of incidents and have a plan and have a command center and have a team on the ground that's seasoned and and has worked together and spent a lot of time together. How
3: many people are you expecting?
2: Close to 40,000 people a day. You know, some days a little bit bigger than Mm -hmm. others, but it's you know, it's it's bigger than a a Red Sox game at Fenway Park. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, you know, and it's it's a much larger site as well. So you got to think about, you know, indoor space and outdoor space and all the roads that run around the fields. There's just a lot of ground to cover and a lot of. um, people to look after. Mm. There's a lot of things that'll happen that people will never even know about, right? Like things like having the bomb squad dogs Mm -hmm. there early in the morning doing their checks and make sure that there's no suspicious packages to, you know, everybody that comes to the event, you know, comes through a metal detector and there's a screening process and there's a, a strict limitation on size of bags you're allowed to bring in. And so there there's a whole lot of things that happen before the gates open that the people never see to make sure that the the ground is safe. We certainly don't want to nor do the police want to make it feel like a police state. Of it's uh they take a, you know, a reserved approach to it, but you just can't ignore the fact that When you're hosting 40,000 people, you just have to have some security measures in place.
3: People don't even know what goes on behind the scenes. I really appreciate you diving into it. And lastly, I just wanted to know, has anything very strange happened at Boston Calling in your experience or even the other festivals that you have? Like what is the weirdest, whether that's a positive or a negative, that's happened at a festival that either of you have been to?
1: We've had, like, a lot of strange weather. Yeah. So (laughs) I remember Boston Calling, 2014 or 15. And it was funny because the National played, but then Volcano Choir, which is another band that Justin has, and a bunch of our friends Mm -hmm. are in that band. Um, And I was so excited to see them. But a crazy thunderstorm with tornadoes came through Boston, and we had to shut down for and evacuate the site for a couple hours. So they, and it was supposed to be their last show. So we were all sort of like, (laughs) it was kind of sad, but.